0: We're listening to the Time to Talk show with Tim and Cameron. The Golden Girls, a fantastic show, Cameron. We're a bit obsessed, yeah, right? Yeah, we're a, a bit obsessed.
1: And Jim Colucci has written an amazing book about the Golden Girls and what people might not have known called The Golden Girls Forever, An Unauthorized Look Behind the Lanai.
0: Jim Colucci is an American critic and mm. he spends years writing these books on different shows. Apparently he's writing one about the love boat now. This yeah. one on the Golden Girls is fan fantastic it's oh, really great. good it's got so much insight into the behind the scenes we were very lucky recently to have a chat with Jim it was a special conversation too wasn't it Cameron I mean tell yeah. us tell us some of the, the highlights of this conversation for you
1: yeah uh, the tensions between B. Arthur and Betty White I that's what know.
0: everyone wants to know about everyone wants to know what actually went on between B. Arthur and yes. Betty White it's actually not as simple as was it a feud was it not a feud more complicated than that wasn't yeah. it he also gives some insight into how that switched switcheroo happened you know that switcheroo mm. where blanche and rose they were going to be played by the opposite actors i think a lot of people know that by now but yeah, yeah. they were that they were cast completely differently we almost had a completely different golden girls
1: yeah and his visit to be arthur's home when he got to see a completely different side of her after a lot of cozying up and he got cl- really close to her yeah really.
0: jim got to go out and, and visit be at her home it's a very very fascinating story mm. And we ask that all important question Mm -hmm. around could the Golden Girls be remade? Yeah, can it be? Now, in this current age, could it be redone? Would anyone ever live up to those lofty standards set by those four amazing women? Mm. Enjoy our conversation with Jim Colucci. I think we need to start by making a confession. What do we do? nearly every single night of our lives you're 16 you're 15 years old but what do we do single night of our lives
1: we listen to the golden girls now (laughs) listen
0: is an important (laughs) word right yes because um, it's our
1: yeah it's our ritual every night to sort of get us to sleep i guess yeah
0: (laughs) that's right we started off we've watched them four million times each but now it's uh we usually watch a little bit and then we just watch a bit and then we go it stays on while we fall asleep yeah very peculiar it's a big (laughs) confession And it's exciting because we've actually got Jim Colucci on the line all the way from the United States. Now, Jim compiled probably the ultimate Bible on the Golden Girls. It's called The Golden Girls Forever, an unauthorized look behind the lanai. Welcome (laughs) to Time to Talk, Jim.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: I scrimped and saved for this book, Jim. I, I finally got it over Amazon, and when it arrived, it was everything I'd hoped it would be. It's really... Yeah. It's a beautiful book, I've got to say. Like, I'm talking in terms of the whole package. Yeah, um, that's made. You've put a lot of effort into
2: this. Thank you, yes. it's it. it that's 10 years of effort you see reflected oh, wow, in that. really? Wow. Of course, I can't take credit for the beautiful visual design that the artist and publisher put into it with the cover, and I was so... I was as pleased as you are when I first saw that those elements. And the rest of it is the 10 years worth of work and finding stashes of secret photos that had never been released before, speaking to people who had never spoken about the show before, and in a lot of cases, sadly, who passed away afterwards. So yeah, this is really, it was really a labor of love. And, and what better way to get to go to fantasy camp than to have the excuse of to get into B. Arthur's living room or Betty White's living room, uh, with the excuse of having of writing a book and getting to interview them. So it for me as a fan it was the ultimate. The only person I didn't get to speak to personally who really was integral to the production was Estelle Getty. Yeah. And when I had first started to think about writing a Golden Girls book, one of the first things I did was contact someone who I knew was in touch with her family because I had already heard in the early 2000s that she wasn't doing well and her memory wasn't good. However, I did then speak to everyone in her life, her sons, her caretaker, her friends, and I I feel like I certainly got a good portrait of what Estelle was like as a wonderful person. I've,
0: I've certainly read many times that during the production of the show, she needed the cue cards, uh, memory was an issue as she was making this show, and obviously I think it was was a dementia that set in later after the show wrapped up. How much of a factor was that for her making this show? Because I heard she was quite frustrated at many points throughout making The Golden Girls. She,
2: she definitely was. It's hard to tell, even in retrospect, how much of Estelle's problem was physical in terms of d- dementia and, and brain problems, and how much of it was... Um, yeah, whether you call panic and anxiety physical or emotional or whatever the the root of that because is. Because she it had might stage, be fright well, yeah, right. stage fright as well, right. She did, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so and it's, it may be an academic exercise trying to determine what was dementia and what was stage fright because they may be manifestations of the same thing. Who knows? But one of the things was that Estelle went into this show as the only unknown, as the only person without TV experience, because B, Betty, and Rue all were TV veterans who knew exactly how a sitcom worked and how lines changed from day to day or from morning to afternoon, and were able to really exercise that memory muscle more than Estelle. Estelle, never mind the fact of whatever dementia that she may have had the beginnings of, but Estelle came from the world of theater, where you memorized a play once, and did it the same way eight times a week, and really knew the lines cold, so that you could act on top of that, improvise, uh, emote on top of that, rather than wondering, oh, did did that line change? Wait, what am I supposed to say? Where am I supposed to be when I say it? It's a really different type of acting. And so she went into the process with a disadvantage that way. And then, of course. As anyone who has anxiety knows, the more anxious you get about your anxiety, the worse it gets. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So as Estelle worried about being able to remember the lines, it affected her ability to remember the lines. And she would have better better weeks and worse weeks, and there would be times when it looked like she was starting to get the hang of it and get get over it, and then she'd kind of relapse. And again, everybody at the time was a little frustrated with her because of her anxiety anxiety and her inability to remember or her uh, her fear of remembering that manifested itself into not remembering. And back then even with depression and anxiety, of course, the world understood that so much less in itself. But now that people look back and think that she may have had the beginnings of dementia and age-related brain disease then they really feel bad for how Estelle soldiered through but sometimes was in emotional pain about
0: it. How did the other ladies react? You said there was some frustration there and I've also seen some interviews with um, other sort of supporting actors and cast who say... There was a lot of um, deep breaths when she needed to get through a particularly
2: long monologue. Back in the day, it frustrated everyone that Estelle couldn't remember lines because the writers would be frustrated that they would write these long picture, Sicily, picture at Sicily stories for her, and they would either have to pare them down bit by bit as Estelle wanted them cut down because she couldn't remember them. And they, 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 they I remember one writer saying you'll write something for Estelle, for Estelle and watch out, she'll break your heart, because eventually you'll end up cutting so much of it so she can get through it. But that also, so it affected the writers, it affected the director, because in the beginning they didn't want to let Estelle use cue cards, because it would affect her performance. You'd see her looking off in the distance. And you can sleep in the show, Jim, from time to time. You can, yes, yeah. I know, but you know, somehow the funny thing is it works for the character, because Sophia having had had a stroke and being older, if she looked off in the air sometimes, it kind of worked for the character. And she was
0: gazing back in time, that's right, exactly. Exactly,
2: so it actually didn't bother me when I would notice that as a viewer, but in the beginning, they didn't want to let her use cue cards, which made it even harder for her to remember the lines, and she would try to cheat and write them on the tablecloth, and write them in her hand, and write them places. So she really had a lot of coping mechanisms, but the problem is, after a while, when an actor keeps flubbing the same part of a scene, and the director has to keep repeating the scene over and over in front of the live audience, there's diminishing returns for the entire scene, because the re- the, the jokes just wear themselves out when when you, the audience, have seen them ten times so, yeah. and seen the scene take place ten times, and so after a while, in order not to wear out the audience and keep everyone there until twelve or one o'clock, they would accept what they had. Move on, and then at the end of the night, get Estelle to come back without the audience oh. there, the other girls, and do pickups, oh. as they call them. Either the entire speech again, or maybe just portions of it. And that's not uncommon in sitcoms to do pickups even after the audience has left. Sure. However, when it becomes a a regular event, when it becomes habitual, what it does is it makes that shoot night longer for everyone else including the other three ladies and so I think that they got frustrated at the time that their their tape nights were longer and kept them up later because of Estelle for what they viewed at the time And her not being able to kind of get her head on straight and get over her fear. What what an interesting time in in
0: her life, Jim. Sorry to interrupt. What what an interesting time in
2: her life, though, because when you watch her interviewed
0: around this time, she's clearly on top of the world of the success that she's had at such a late stage in her life. She only she came into acting late as well. But I also know that there's plenty of evidence of her anxiety. Obviously, she must have known that she had memory issues around that time. Like you say, where they came from, who knows? I also read that she didn't particularly like to do any scenes related to death. And if there was a coffin in the scene, Mm -hmm. well, apparently that was a big problem.
2: She did. You know, one of the things I I love about Estelle, I'm actually getting like a little choked up as I say this. One of the things I really love about Estelle, just from hearing about her, because again, I never got to meet her in person, is she had such empathy for people. She really was someone who wore her heart on her sleeve. And... That's why she became so involved in fundraising to fight AIDS in the very beginning, because she had a nephew who contracted the disease, she had friends who contracted the disease, and it killed her. It was really ripping her apart to lose people in her life. And she really felt for people. And if you're doing a scene with a casket in the middle of the room and you're standing over the casket cracking jokes, it just felt really inorganic and disrespectful to her. So she was very careful, I think, about the tone of those scenes after first getting over her her reticence to do them at all.
1: Yeah, um, I was wondering if she was um a little bit apprehensive about doing scenes about death and all that. Um, there was an episode called The Heart Attack, where she, the whole uh, episode was about um, Sophia having like a bit of a problem after eating too much food, which is what they eventually found out. She goes to heaven, doesn't she? Yeah, she goes to heaven and all that. Um, but um, how did she feel about doing that episode? You know? That
2: was that episode was very early on, and actually, I think Estelle. I don't know for a fact what Estelle felt about that particular episode, but I bet I, I bet I can guess, mm. because Estelle must have felt more than anything worrying about the theme of the episode. Estelle must have felt relief, the reason being that that episode was originally conceived to be performed live. All that episode, along with the other three sitcoms that aired at the time on NBC on Saturday nights, were all going to be performed live. It was a gimmick that the network came up with and pitched to all the shows. And for a while, all the shows were on board and said, okay, we'll do a live show. So if you notice... All of the action in that episode was set in the living room so that it could be performed live, so that there wouldn't be scenery changes and new sets and whatever. And so that's why the, Susan Harris, the creator, conceived of that episode that could be con- bottled up in the living room and it would just be a, the, the aftermath of a dinner party and worrying about Ma. And one by one the other NBC sitcoms dropped out and said you know what we don't want to do this live including the Golden Girls and yeah. so they didn't end up having to do it live and that's I'm sure what was what on, on Estelle's mind that week yeah. what I don't have to do it live in front of all of America thank God hmm. and so I can't imagine she objected in any other way yeah
0: So I want to talk to you about the other ladies as well of course the ones that you did meet and managed to interview as part of the process of making this book but before we do that do you have a particular episode or episode that stand out for you because um we certainly have ours that we our go-to mm-hmm. episodes don't Definitely, we yeah. for example dorothy's new friend is one of our yeah. <laughs> absolute oh favorites
2: my god. i love dorothy's new friend oh my god what yeah, is it about great- that episode she's
0: just so good that 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 yeah. biatch that comes into the <laughs> yeah.
2: episode isn't she great yeah. and she's still with us she lives actually about a mile from where i'm sitting right really? now and i run into her once in a while. bonnie bartlett uh, and uh, she is she's amazing. you know, a really long time. Is it true actress. that she
0: actually auditioned for the part of the Arthur uh, well of Dorothy? Yeah.
2: She, she did. She auditioned for the show, yes. Oh, and yeah. so it, it, the thing about the Golden Girls was that when this script was written, and it would be true today, too, the older women were woefully underemployed on television. Yeah. And there were so many talented women out there who couldn't get jobs. And so when they heard that Susan Harris a really esteemed writer had created a show for four older women everyone hard. wanted to do it. everyone wanted an audition and so they the NBC had their pick of everyone mm. and of course they cast it brilliantly they couldn't have cast it any better mm. and what was interesting is that some of those women then ended up popping up later so they ended up seeing them and, and keeping them in mind like with Bonnie Bartlett playing Barbara Thorndike there's something about Barbara Thorndike that yeah we all love just how evil she was and some of the things she said. And I, I love there's a Twitter account for Barbara Thorndike and she just oh, tweets really. things like, you know, something she always is calling people mad <laughs> and she's like, Meet me at the Mortimer Club and I'll <laughs> join the card slot. It's just lines from the episode, but just she there's just something Twitter so that's amazing. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's still active. How it was the awesome. last time I picked. But yeah, look <laughs> for Barbara and just She doesn't tweet that often because I guess there's not that many lines from the show you can keep <laughs> repeating. But uh, it's just so much fun to see her tweets.
0: And there was also another lady, I, I don't know her name, but she does a one-woman show. Um, and she talks about how she auditioned for the part of Dorothy and it, and Susan Harris it didn't it didn't go well for her to say the least I think she used an F-bomb during the audition she mm.
2: did that was Elaine Stritch and she was a Broadway legend mm. and had done had done movies and TV but really stage was her milieu and she lived uh, to be in her mid to late 80s she passed away about two years ago And uh, she did a one-woman show called At Liberty around New York and then, I think, other places in the country. And that was one of the stories she told in the show about how she had auditioned for the Golden Girls and how wrong she would have been for it and how badly the audition went. And that was also at a time when B. Arthur hadn't been really seriously approached yet because NBC was reticent about casting her because of the mod abortion episode and they thought that people didn't like her and so the casting people had to scramble for a second idea of someone who could play Dorothy and Elaine Stritch is kind of the same type yeah. a ball bust type so she was a good choice however she was no B. Arthur B. Arthur was perfect for the part and thank god it worked out that way now is it mm.
0: true that B. Arthur um, even after reading the script was not because she she wanted she almost wanted to retire I think around this stage and she was, I think she was tired. and and all of a sudden she had this runaway success once she got the part. But is it correct that she didn't particularly want to take this part? She needed to be talked
2: into it. She did need to be talked into it. now talked into it. however, B's memory of that casting process was different from everyone else. Absolutely. yeah. So everyone else says, and Susan Harris, the writer creator, says, that she wrote that script, and in the stage directions it says, "Dorothy's Bournac, comma a B Arthur type." So Susan Harris, having written the Maud abortion episode, certainly being familiar with B's work, B even appeared on soap as well. Susan's other show had B in mind, brilliantly, uh, and the the other characters were auditioned uh, before Dorothy. Estelle got the role first, actually, because they thought Sophia would be the hardest to find, so they started with her. And they, of course, cast and, and Roo, I mean, Betty and Rue, but in reverse to what they actually played. So Betty was going to be playing uh, playing Blanche, and Rue was going to be playing Rose, and then luckily they decided to switch, or the director switched them. Uh, so all of that had been going on before they nailed down the Dorothy role, and... Uh, B, in her memory, says that she had no idea that there was the script out here, with, out there with her name in it, and she must have been the last person in Hollywood to find out when her agent called and said, "What's this? I hear about you doing a new show." And B said, "I don't know what you're talking about," and he told her, "There's a script that has your name in it." Uh, other people say that you know the process started a little earlier with B, but she said, "No, I'd, I." I don't know what to to believe other Ru than. Had that.
0: to step in, didn't she, Rumiko? Yeah, yes,
2: that part I know is true. So, what ended up happening was when B did finally get the script she read it and b had been burned with by television before yes she had had that huge hit with Maud, but b had done a show called amanda's by the sea oh, that, that was, was kind terrible. of terrible that was the it faulty faulty was towers towers oh, a yeah, exactly.
0: adored john cleese and and yeah. and the sarcasm of both the characters yeah i can see why on paper it looked like it might work but that yeah. show as a big faulty towers fan and i i had to hunt Hard, to, Jim, to find the episodes of that show. It's like be personally buried them or something. But I eventually found them, and I, I sort of wish I hadn't. They're mm-hmm. awful.
2: Yeah, there were there was one or two that I remember working, but I'm sure they were taken directly from Faulty Tower scripts. It certainly was not a good show. It wasn't a good experience for B. And she, so I think she was burned out on television. She herself told me when I interviewed her that 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 time coincidentally was not a great time in her life. Her mother was sick and dying. She was still smarting, I think, from her divorce from Gene Sachs. So she wasn't, I think, in a great place. And then to be told, you know, here we have the script, and she thought that it was going to be the way that it was originally cast, that... Betty would be playing Blanche, and Rue uh, would be playing Rose, and she thought that was too similar repetition. to what had already been on television. Betty had already been the man-hungry uh, Sue Ann Nivens, and Rue had already been a second banana when she played Vivian on Maud. And so, according to the fa- to Rue, the famous phone call was that Rue called B. Susan Harris had asked her to call B and talk her into it, and Rue called B and said, why are you passing on the greatest script that's ever going to come across your desk? And B said, "I have no interest in playing Maude meet Sue, uh, Vivian and Sue Ann Nivens." And when Rue explained that no, the switcheroo had been made—that that, that uh, Rue would be playing Blanche and Betty would be playing Rose—that took B back, and she said, "Oh, well, that's different." And so she took another look at the script and signed on.
0: And thank God she did, Rod. Right? Yes. Well, tell us about the the rumored feud between B Arthur and Betty White.
2: It's so complicated. Yes, I mean, I, the uh, overall answer is yes, there was, there were some ill feelings there. Uh, but it's complicated because, and I I always get frustrated as a TV critic when I go to events and I hear the cast say, we're like a family, because usually they're saying that to, to really put one over on you and make it sound like that means they love each other, love each other, love each other all the time. What we're like a family, I've found, actually means, though, and it is true of most sitcom casts, is... You love each other and you fight with each other all at the same time. Yeah. That's like a family. Yeah. And so I really do think, and I can give you examples of where B said bad things about Betty, but I, I, I really do think underlying everything, B really did like Betty in that they four were on the stratospheric ride with this show that took off and they realized that they had each other. They were the only four people who could understand what this situation was like. And they also were a team in making the show work. And so as much as that I'll, I'll get to in a minute what would, would B would, would bristle at, underlying everything, there was teamwork. And I think I see that when they go on, say, the Merv Griffin show or clips you can see online where B and Betty kind of, you know, they play with each other and whatever, and they tease each other. But I do see some love there and I see some camaraderie. and when they would film the episodes of the show, they would do it in a way that isn't done too much anymore, which is they would film at what they called their dress rehearsal show uh, at, say, 5 p.m. or so, and they would do the scenes but not too many times because they knew they would take a dinner break, get some notes on how to change the scenes, and then they would film it again for the air show, as they called it, which is the one where they had to then make sure they got everything right if they hadn't the first time. So they really got two shots at it. And in between – when the dress show would end and they would all go to dinner they all would put on these big white terry cloth robes that would protect their wardrobe while they had dinner because dinner wasn't just dinner it was a note session around a conference table and everybody else would go to dinner b would wait until she found betty and she would take her by the hand and the two of them walked into that note session together every week and so i think it's a it's a case of even if there's someone who you don't see eye to eye with it that's a gesture of we're doing this together now that Betty and B could not have been more different. B came from the Norman Lear School of acting, where everything was big and loud and like a stage show. If you look at all on the family, it's very much it's very stagey. and there are speeches and and it's it's a different kind of comedy. Betty came from the Mary Tyler Moore Show, which is much more subtle and character based. And so they they're used to different types of direction, different types of sitcom acting. B was a theater actress. Theater actors, I mean, this is no slam on them or on B, but theater actors can be snobs about people who aren't theater actors, and Betty was not. And Betty came from a live television and game show background which B kind of looked down on. Betty was in front of the audience a machine first of all in memorizing her lines. B was not and took a long time and would even have the be on book until the last possible moment. So that was a difference. Betty could also fall in and out of character during the taping when they'd cut, yell cut, Betty could go back to being Betty and clown around with the audience and keep them mm-hmm. active and happy throughout the night. B needed to stay in character as Dorothy and found that distracting. Uh, B had kind of a cloud over her head all the time. As I said, she was unhappy at that time. Betty is Little Miss Sunshine, that everything she could put a happy face on and be happy about. It's just they were so different in so many ways that they were bound to conflict. Was
0: B jealous? of Betty White's ability to to do that with an audience. Hmm.
2: I think so. I think that B just was a very shy introverted person and even when people would come on the show as guest stars or you know people who weren't just audience audience members who were in the industry, B was not the jovial kind of hostess make them feel at home kind. B is was a very guarded person. It's funny because people always thought she was so tough because she was tall and because she played tough characters. And mm. she is. She was actually vulnerable. tough on the outside, but yeah. a real mushball, vulnerable on the inside. Betty's the exact opposite. Again, Betty is sweet and grandmotherly on the outside, and on the inside is really strong. As I mean, that's why she's ninety-six and still working. Yeah. Because she that strength. So again, that's where they're different. But that's but how people, people perceive set, it. Though, because you'd have but to. that is exactly that. Yeah. That's their personas. But the persona kind of betrayed B, and that people thought that the way to interact with her was to play rough with her because she was Maude. And she was Dorothy. And actually, that's the complete wrong approach to be. She was hmm. very easily hurt, very sensitive, very yeah, shy. Yeah. And, 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 she and there would were jokes on the like, show, <laughs> Jim, about
0: her appearance and yeah, stuff. And apparently, uh, yeah. like you say, appearing like a strong person... I often wondered, before I did any reading about the show, gee, it must be hard to have, mm. be called the Bride of Frankenstein by a child, and all the joke. there were so many jokes about her appearance and
1: yeah, like voice. Yeah, i always feel safe having you in the house. Yeah, and it sounds like, like you, you swallowed a
0: man, stuff like <laughs> yes. that. Exactly. Is there any evidence that that hurt
2: her? Oh, definitely. And I had always, from the time that I was little, wondered about how casting calls work when it's for something that is physically insulting. When Rose would be called stupid. Betty White is anything but stupid. She's a genius. Yeah. So th- it was easy for Betty to disassociate from that. When when Blanche would be called a slut, Rue could decide, you know, Rue wrote a book called My First Five Husbands and the Ones Who Got Away. So Rue would joke about her own sex life, but that was up to Rue to she joke owned about. It. It. Yeah, yeah. And she Exactly. When Estelle would be called old, well, you know, when Sophia would be called old, well, so Estelle in real life was 20 something years younger than, than uh, Sophia. So that didn't bother her. But how, when you're B, do you, do you disassociate yourself from being called tall, manly, ugly? It really wore on her. And it got to, a, she would she would have reactions every once in a while. And then there's a story in the book about how brand new writers on the show had gotten their big break in season four and they wrote their first episode of the show, and it went to the writer's room. After, what typically happens is writers t- write a first draft of a show, but then it gets group rewritten, and as they say, punched up, jokes added by the whole writer's room. And so their script had gone to the writer's room, which had punched it up with jokes, and by the time it got to the table read, as they say, which is when the cast first reads it aloud in front of producers, it had all of these jokes calling Dorothy big and ugly that hadn't been in the original script. And B broke down crying. And she walked off and, and yeah. threatened to quit the show and said, you've been calling me big and ugly for four years now. This has to stop. Yeah. And the writers, the, they were brand, as I said, brand new to the industry, feared that they were going to get fired. Like, oh, great. We turn in our first script. Somebody adds lines we didn't even write, and we're going to get blamed for it. Mm-hmm. They ended up not getting fired. B ended up not quitting. But they did make a resolve from then on to do less Dorothy bashing.
1: Wow! Wow! So that I'd would probably be noticeable
0: in the show. Yeah. The poor thing, you know, it, it must have been. It must have been ter- terrible for her. the jokes oh, didn't cease terrible. altogether though, because they're there right through to the end of the the series. So they obviously just Tempered toned them, them bit, down and yeah. made them a little bit more respectful, I suppose. Wow! Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What is it about the Golden Girls, Jim? You've written this book, and it's it, it, it's a bestseller, and all of this. So clearly the fan base is still there, and and I and I know I'm sitting here with a 15 year old son yeah. who's right into the show. We're about to get our eight year old daughter into the show as well. I reckon mm. she's going to love yeah. Estelle. Or she really she's, did
1: she's, enjoy it when she watched it. Last oh, she time.
0: did. She had a little watch, did she? Yeah, yeah. So it it spans the generations. Why why does this show cut across? And last, it ended in 1992. I think, around yes. there, and it's still, it feels just Tons. as strong as ever. Yeah, yeah.
2: It's its something about the magic of the writing and the performing, of course, the performance. Um, it's also the availability of the show. It Lifetime uh, television in the U.S. aired it th- for something like 13 or 14 years, nonstop, every day, in that 11 o'clock hour that you talk about going to sleep with. By the way, you're, you're not at all alone. Is that, that right? is, Oh, with the disturbing news that's on the nightly news every night, I know so many people who say they go to sleep to the Golden Girls, and that's why the I I don't know how, how it works in the in Australia, but the U. Several U.S. cable networks air the show at 11 o'clock, 11:30, 12, and 12:30, like a two-hour block every night, so that people can go to sleep with it. But and team, it's I've, got, I've
0: got to say, uh, like I've, I know that that that's the first thought that popped into my head. I have to ask myself, why? Why do I do this? It's bizarre <laughs> because it could be any comedy, and you're right. It, it's about having something and not serious before you go to sleep but why this show here's the thing I've come up with for what it's worth and I don't know if other fans will feel the same I feel part of that family Mm. to an extent I really yeah. do I, I, I yeah. feel like I could visit there I know I was really disappointed when I saw B Arthur say it could never have worked you never would have had it happen for women living like that and I, I broke mm. my heart because yeah. <laughs> I was like I, I, I want to visit this. there yeah. I want to be one of those characters the young characters that they took in from yeah. time to time so there was a I. pregnant girl there was the, the immigrant boy yeah. All of this sort of stuff. I want to be one of them. So is that what you hear, Jim, that maybe this, some people feel connected to them as as family, which is weird, Definitely. but that's how I feel.
2: <laughs> Definitely. And it's not weird to feel that way at all. I mean, I, I wrote a previous book about the Golden Girls that was for the LGBT community called The Q Guide to the Golden Girls. And one of the reasons why I said that LGBT audiences refer, respond to the show, but it's not only gay audiences, it's certainly everyone, is the fact that this is a surrogate family that you can join. And they're the perfect family. They love each other. They take care of each other. They're funny. They're well dressed. They always have dates. They always have cheesecake. Mm-hmm. They're they're witty. There's nothing bad that's going to happen that lasts beyond twenty two minutes mm-hmm. in their household. And it's and it's they they view each other as family, and that's such a great entry point. And not only for older people when the show was first being tested for it, and when NBC had a pilot and they were testing it, they expected that the test results would come back, that only old people were going to say they were gonna watch this show. And instead, the testing revealed intent to watch from across the board, particularly from children, who, as you said, might happen with your daughter, Responded to Sophia here was this tiny little outrageous loud person that mm. kids love mm. <laughs> and so there are entry points for everyone But you really feel like oh this is a house of love where people choose to live together and help each other who? It's it's so comforting to join that
1: yeah, and like for me I grew up with the show so and like you say I, I grew up really loving Sophia she was just hilarious her lines were like quick and witty, and un- un- I started to understand them. It sort of developed my humor a bit. But uh, as I got older, I started to um, like Dorothy even more, for because she's sarcastic. She's um, she's on the ball. She's her facial expressions. She's a everything. bit like a teenager, actually. Yeah, a yeah. little bit, it's and kind of especially because she's with her mother. Yeah, um, <laughs> and yeah, I guess I guess that really ties in with the family family thing and feeling like it's part of you're part of a family, especially when you grow up with it.
2: That's so true. Yeah, it really, and it, I, I do think accessibility had a lot to do with it. Now, I, I don't know, again, in Australia how it works, but in the U.S., not only is it playing on all those cable networks and, and you can you own DVDs, but it's on Hulu. So it's on demand and downloadable. And so that, I, these streaming services, um, similarly, Netflix in the U.S. has friends, uh, and I think that's helping that shows uh, being discovered by a new generation again. Mm. I, I, the availability is a big part of it that if you, if you end up having it kind of seep into your life in one way or another and, and, you, and you get to sample it you love it but it has to be a great show that, that catches you like that
0: I've got two little fan-only fan questions for you Jim really quickly Do, sure. will they ever remaster this because when I watch it I always think I wish the quality was a bit improved particularly on those earlier ones yeah. have they remastered this at all and released it on any format
2: uh, I don't know the answer to that because the DVDs, I believe, are the full versions of the episode, as compared to the syndicated versions, which did get cut for time. Yeah, I do. Mm. Yeah. So I and I think the Hulu is showing the full versions, but I don't know for a fact like that everything is exactly the way it aired or was shot the first time or remastered. I, I'm not sure.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. And 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 the other question, I'm always in two minds about this. Can they remake? the Golden Girls. Mm -hmm. Can Uh, they do it again? Because they're rebooting everything at the moment which is a reboot's a bit different because it's bringing back the original cast so obviously can't do that here but can they remake the Golden Girls and should they remake the Golden Girls?
2: That is the million dollar question. Of course people have been saying that for ever since it ended. not e- Even before the reboot fever of Roseanne and Murphy Brown hit here in the States, people were asking in the 90s if there could be a new Golden Girls. And actually, part of my book talks about how so many shows really were the new Golden Girls. Designing Women, which aired only <laughs> debuted a year after the Golden Girls, was the Southern Golden Girls. Yeah. And Sex in the City would be the New York Golden Girls. And there was a show called Noah's Ark where it was African-American gay men who were the Golden Girls. And that formula has really proved to work really well of uh, four characters with those kind of characteristics so in a way it has been done you're right but and especially sex
0: and the city I mean they even pay homage to to the Golden Girls being the predecessor for that but what about in its truest format though in its purest form can they just bring it well, back
2: so it would have to be if you called it the Golden Girls and had it be women it would be I think destined to fail because as good as many actresses are and as different of skills as they may have than the four original women, no one is B. Arthur. And will and everyone playing Darth, a character named Dorothy Zbornak will always be measured up to Be Arthur and is doomed to fail, even if they could be better in some other ways. So I don't think that you could really do something called the Golden Girls and have it be four women and be a success. And I think that th- that's one of the reason why all of the worldwide adaptations of the Golden Girls, whether they're called the Brighton Bells or called uh, a local language edition of whatever translates as the Golden Girls, they've all failed because they don't have B and Betty and Rue and Estelle. Mm -hmm. If there are people here in the States, myself being one of them, who've written pilots, uh, there's another one by a Golden Girls writer named Stan Zimmerman and and James Berg, two Golden Girls writers, that they they wrote called Silver Foxes, mine is called Desert Rainbow, uh, where you would make it a little bit different, where, of course, it wouldn't be those actresses, but it would be maybe a gay male version, but it was before retirees. So there, there, you'd have to, I think, take a, a step away from the original format and, of course, the original casting before you would be able to do something that wouldn't be doomed to fail.
1: Badly, yeah. (laughs) Um, well I just wanted to ask, um, what's so iconic about the, um, cheesecake scenes? Because, um, I read a lot about how much thought goes into where everyone's sitting, like particularly, um, is always at the head of the table, it seems, um, for facial expressions, and, um, uh, just the character in general, how tall she is and everything. Um, and also where, where they exit and everything, and the scenes are very famous, um in merchandise and all that sort of stuff um why is that do you think
0: this is where they actually start to sort through the problem of the episode isn't it
1: yeah yeah exactly yeah.
2: yes well for a lot of the reasons that you said uh, when you for merchandising it makes sense because it's a great way to depict the four of them in the same frame they're yeah, sitting yeah. there at the table um and and yes their positions at the table other than dorothy's did vary according to who had what to do and what scene uh, and if you've noticed, of course, no one sat in the natural spot you would really sit at a table, mm. which would no. put your back to the camera, so that had to make it a little bit artificial to fit a proscenium setting. Yes. Uh, but the cheesecake scenes were an example of brilliant writing in that most sitcoms and most, some sitcom writing classes will tell you that because runtimes of shows are so short and it's so hard to fit an A-plot and a B-plot into 21 minutes or whatever it is now, that everything you do has to serve the plot directly and advance the plot forward and there's no room for any fat yeah and what cheesecake scenes do is violate that and it's yeah. such a a breath of fresh air yes a lot of times they're on theme and they do work out their problems by discussing them but they do it in a roundabout way yeah. maybe they work out their problem by discussing them as the moral of a St. Olaf story that takes two minutes out of the out of the episode What's the point it's rose not, <laughs> right exactly and so I think that that is such a sign of confident writing that you know that you can take the audience out of the story for a chunk of time, whether it's a minute or two, entertain them with a sideshow that's going to be so good that that it's worth it to them and bring them right back into the story and give those women a chance to shine and discuss and make jokes and have the kind of conversations that we all have in real life when we sit and have lunch with each other. It doesn't all have to be literally on the go 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 let's solve this problem let's give them a moment to be silly and be funny and just just really shine my friend did you hate the golden palace did you hate it i say about the golden palace the same thing i say about pizza which is that you know how even bad pizza is still good pizza well (laughs) even bad golden Girls missing b arthur
0: b arthur was the anchovy that wasn't there
2: (laughs) yeah so although I agree with Betty's assessment that the Golden Palace was like a three-legged coffee table because it was missing B. Um, <laughs> I,
1: like
2: I that. do I do <laughs> first of all B did come back for that two-parter episode and so it was kind of like old times. Yeah. And there are moments in Golden Palace that I like and uh, there's a really moving episode called Tad where Blanche's uh, intellectually disabled brother is introduced played by Ned Beatty and that was a, a surprise to me and, and gave Rue a chance to shine so there it has its moments would I recommend it or say it's as good as even the, the least of the Golden Girls episodes no but it's, it's still it's bad pizza it's still worth it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I remember watching that as a little kid and I, uh, actually quite enjoying it. But um, as I look back on it now, I sort of enjoyed it from joke to joke, but it wasn't the same as The Golden Girls and that the story flowed really well. It feels and so Nickelodeon. It feels yeah. like Saved by the Bell. Yeah. It's like cheap and the nasty. The dynamics yeah. weren't as cheap and nasty. Yeah, so it yeah. has its
2: moments. It has its moments, joke to joke or scene to scene. The bigger betrayal is that the theme of The Golden Girls that everyone loved, and the reason why we love the show, as we said, is this idea that when you get older, your life will be fabulous? You will live with friends. There will mm. always be love. There will always be cheesecake. There will always be people who have your back. Yeah. And that's what the show had drilled into us for seven years. And became made...
0: slaves. Yeah.
2: Right. Exactly. And then the moral of the Golden Palace is: Wait a minute! All of a sudden, somebody will get married, move out. You can't afford your house. You have to buy a hotel, and now you're in your 80s and you have to work like dogs. <laughs> that is I've never thought a hundred percent yeah, way. To yeah. Do the good, of the Golden Girls. I mean so it doesn't to me it it criticizing whether Blanche got too slutty or Rose got too dumb yeah that's probably true but it, the bigger betrayal is that they had to clean toilets in a hotel
0: yeah yeah you're yeah, yeah, absolutely right we've taken up so much of your time jim and i apologize for that but there was <laughs> there was so much we wanted to talk about i do want to know though you 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 met all of them bar yeah. Estelle who did you engage
2: with the most it was all so different and it was i couldn't have scripted it better how they all showed me who they really were in that day. And as I said, Rue, you saw some cranky moments with her, but that wasn't all she was that day. She was really lovely to me. Uh, and you know, it was funny because when I got to her door, I rang her doorbell and I was a little early before the camera and the makeup people and she was fresh out of the shower, like in a bathrobe that was, and she was like, hi. So I was like, oh my God, this is great. It's like, you know, meeting Blanche fresh out of the shower. Um, and Betty was everything you'd expect Betty to be. She, her living room in her house is a sunshiny, bright, happy yellow. And we sat in her living room with her dog Pontiac, her golden retriever on my feet. And she gives brilliant responses to questions. And the only thing is, because even at 84, she was so busy that she only had an hour for me that day. We did more phone calls later, but that day she only had an hour exactly for me. And so at an hour and one minute, her assistant very politely said, I'm sorry, Betty has to go now. And so it was just everything you thought Betty would be. Grandmotherly, sweet, bright, sunny, yellow, dog-loving, and busy. So (laughs) B. Arthur, Was I I actually have told the story on stage about my day with B. Arthur because it's such a long, involved story. But the long and the short of it is that B was exactly who I would suspect she would be, which is that for the first, I'd say, hour of our interview, she was giving me single syllable answers to questions yes, no, I don't know, I don't remember. she wasn't really that into talking about it and in fact I had really had to beg her to do this interview I had to kind of phone stalk her and call her over and over and over to get, to get didn't her to agree.
0: want to be there well, how did you win her over
2: well I called so many times and the first few times I called she said she didn't want to do it and then at the end of the phone call she would I'd, I'd kind of get that she was softening a little bit so she had said no 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 and then she'd say well call me next week and we'll talk again so every she'd always leave the door open for me to pursue her a little bit more again. And so I would. And and as time went on, I think we developed a little bit of a rapport over the phone and she trusted me a little bit more. And eventually invited me over to her home. Now, it was not the home that you may have seen in the press, just sold recently for a lot of money. Her Her sons were actually renovating that house for her at the time, and so she was living in a temporary house. And so I went and we sat in her living room. With her bare feet up on the coffee table, she was always barefooted. And as I said, she gave me kind of single-syllable answers for a while. And then she got a little more into it. The problem was, and I don't know if you have the show, so you'll get the joke of this in, in Australia. But uh, at about quarter to four, I saw that she was getting antsy. And I wondered what the issue was. And then I hear her say under her breath, and you can hear it on my tape recording, Judge Judy's on in 15 minutes.
1: <laughs>
2: and I thought, oh, man. oh my God, I have been stalking this woman by phone for months to be able to come here. And I actually live in New York and I was, this was one of my last weeks in Los Angeles. I'm not going to leave so she can watch judge Judy. So I mm-hmm. pretended I didn't hear that. And then at about 10 minutes after four, you hear her again say, I guess I can miss judge Judy for one day.
0: Oh man. So, that makes so much sense that B Arthur would be a, a, a Judy oh, fan, yeah. doesn't
2: amazing. it? Because Judy takes no prisoners and Judy bears no fools, and that's exactly it. what it was. They were friends. In fact, the ultimate
0: sense. parody. I've never seen a good parody of Judge Judy, but she could have done it. B yeah. Arthur could yes. have done it.
2: Yeah. of course. And they were and they were friends because they were so like minded. So eventually, you know, B did open up, gave me great stuff. Yeah. The the proviso that I had agreed to uh, in in coming over to her house. And I, of course, was happy to do it. Was that I would stay and have a drink with her afterward. Oh, and so uh, we finished the recording. It was probably about five o'clock. Unfortunately, I had a rental car to return by six o'clock across town, and B, uh, you know, asked me what I wanted. She had a very, even though this was a temporary house she was living in, and she didn't know where most things wa- were. She did have a fully stocked liquor cabinet, mm-hmm. and. She asked me what I wanted, and I picked white wine, which I thought would be the least offensive, especially then to get on the road and race this car back to the rental agency. And so we poured two giant balloon goblets of wine that were basically a half a bottle of wine in each glass (laughs) and sat there and made small talk for the next 45 minutes. And it was a little awkward because she is a little guarded, and... In the earlier conversation, of course I had things to ask her about the golden Girls. Now it was pers- personal and I didn't want to you know offend her or, or I, you know I didn't know what to say it for a while and but we did we had a nice talk and I remember that I mentioned she mentioned a love for what they called here in the 60s. I don't know if people still know this term hag films. No. Remember whatever happened to baby Jane? Oh yes yeah. yes where the great screen actresses would actually be now playing these in, in these kind of horror and monster films to yes. keep working. And so B really admired, loved those hag films. That's very telling about her, too, that she loved seeing these women from the 30s and 40s playing old hags. And so I told her about one I had seen with Lana Turner, a British-made movie from the 70s, and B got all excited and said, I must have a copy of that. So I mailed her a copy later. But uh, we had a nice talk, and at the end of the conversation, uh, I got up, and I started putting away my computer, and I, I... did something that I hadn't done with any of the others, any of the other interviewees at all, not just the women, where I really felt that B and I had kind of come to a, a an understanding where, in, as I said in the beginning, she may have been guarded and, and uh, worried about the interview. And by the end, she was really lovely and open and sweet. And I really felt like I kind of broke through her protective layer and saw more of the real her. And so I asked her, can I have a hug? Ooh. And she hugged me and it was a little bit reluctant at first and was stiff. And then the moment I was really hugging her, I just felt her whole body relax. Wow. kind of, kind of fall into my arms a little bit. And I yeah. thought, Oh my God, this is such a metaphor for the day I've had with her that she was stiffened and worried. And then really, you know, we connected literally as our hearts are touching each other. And it was a moment I'll never forget. And she, uh, she called after me as I walked to the car after we had hugged and I was walking out. And uh, she, we had had plans originally to meet in person the first time at a Golden Girls themed event that they were doing here in, in Beverly Hills. And uh, B ended up not showing up to that event and it was just Betty and Rue. So I never met B that night. And B, uh, Betty had told people that night that B's doctor had said she was so sick, don't you dare get out of bed. And I had a feeling that Betty was, again, putting a smiley face on something that was really not true. So as I was walking out of B's house after we hugged, and I felt like I was a little choked up, and walking to my car, B called after me and said, By the way! And I turned around and said, Yes, B? She said, I wasn't sick that night either. Oh. And then shut <laughs> So, I mean, I think that said so much of it. She was she was confiding in me, and that was a little dig about how she didn't want to be bothered with Betty probably that night. And, uh, and, and then yet, years later, at the TV land reunions, she was all over Betty hugging her. and I think this was when Bee was ill and knew the end was near. and, and you know she was lovely. So it, with the Betty thing, it depends upon, I guess, the day you caught her. But I, I do think that if you if you made it past B's first impression, if you weren't chewing gum, if you didn't have on a baseball cap indoors, if you didn't have a bird, <laughs> all the weird hang-ups that she had—that for reasons why she would have a negative first impression of people—yeah, she was afraid of birds. Oh, so if, if you had, if if you got past that that uh, layer of protection, and you stuck around through a little bit of the gruffness, you would break through to, I think, a real beautiful side of her that I was so glad I got to see.
1: Mm, And you probably learnt more about her in that last 45 minutes than in the whole day of interviewing her because she was relaxed finally.
2: Exactly. I feel I did. I feel like I really got to see her and I wanted to make sure when I wrote the book that the book reflected the beautiful side of her because I do think there's a way to write this book and I hope it doesn't read that way where you read individual people saying from the five minutes they had with her on set that she was dismissive or cold. And it's because she was shy and, again, protective. Yeah. But I don't want those stories to add up to a read that makes it seem like she was a bitch because she really, although could engage in some not-so-pleasant behavior, she I think she would even admit to that, she was really a lovely person, and I hope that's what comes through.
0: Yeah. It does, it does. It comes through that she was a lovely person, but just riddled with insecurity, which yeah. mm. is the opposite of how she presents. So it must have been a constant thing throughout her whole, li- her whole life, I'm imagining. Yeah. Jim, thank you so much for talking us talking to us about the Golden Girls and your book, Golden Girls Forever, an unauthorized look behind the Lanai. Thanks, Jim. Thanks mm. for your time.
2: Thank you, guys. Really pleasure talking with you.